As we continue in worship, would you pray with me? Father, we have worshipped in prayer. We have worshipped in song. We have worshipped in giving. And Lord, now we turn to worship in your word. And Father God, your word has directed all of our worship to this point. Father, for the prayers that we have offered have been drawn and have reflected the truths of your word. The songs we have sung have been taken, in some cases, literally from your word. And our giving is done in obedience to your word. And so, Lord, now as we hear your word proclaimed, we pray that you would speak. Lord God, that your truth would be what is heard and that you would guard error from my lips, Father, that you would remove distraction from our hearts and minds so that we might encounter, we might see the glory of our God in the person of His Son, who is the living Word. Father, we pray these things now for Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, about a month ago, it may be longer now just because of how quickly time flies, but our home's outdoor security light went out. And as I explained facetiously last week, for those of you who remember, when something around our house falls into disrepair or it breaks outright, I leap at the opportunity to demonstrate my handyman skills. I've told my children on numerous occasions, that's why everyone calls me Handy Andy, to which my children quickly respond, no one calls you that, Dad. No one. And they're right. But that doesn't, that doesn't stop me from giving home repair projects my very best efforts. And so on this occasion, I made, I made a plan to repair my light. I had a feeling it was a simple fix, and as I've said before, that was probably my first mistake, but my plan involved me. It depended upon my abilities, and it would result in my praise. Because isn't this the manner, church, in which we love to live life, performing before others so that they notice and they're led to acknowledge whatever it is that we've done, be it a home repair project, a, a surgical procedure, a building project completed, teeth cleaned, a school assignment finished, turned in, a sermon written, or possibly even just your yard mode. Whatever it is, as human beings, we love the praise of others. Even those among us whose personalities prefer solitude still crave the recognition of others because we're proud people, aren't we? We, we need affection and to know that we're valued because from the moment we're born, we believe that the, we are the most important person on the planet. I mean, just ask Brian and Kristen, who does Judah think the whole world revolves around? It's not his mom or dad. And from the moment of conception, our lives are defined by plans which revolve around us, depend upon our abilities, and result in our praise. But sadly, as many of us have already discovered, the, this approach to life doesn't lead to peace, doesn't lead to peace, does it? And as we look at the state of our world today, at our culture here in the United States, what I believe we see is not a people content with the outcome of their plans and at peace with both themselves and others. Rather, what we see is a nation at war with itself, a country whose constitution declares freedom for all, and yet in reality, all that we see evidenced is slavery in different forms, for sure, from those that marred our nation in its early days, but we are a nation no less enslaved today. Our world remains imprisoned, and there is no plan that people may invent and implement that can provide peace. But friends, 
God has a plan. The God of the Bible has a plan. And I'd like us to see God's plan this morning and how it differs from those that we so often attempt to put into practice. And so would you turn with me now, if you have your Bibles, to the book of Exodus and find chapter 6. Exodus 6. Last week we looked together at how Pharaoh rejected God's word and made life harder upon the Israelites, a decision that led Moses to regret ever declaring God's words to Egypt's king. However, God then reminded Moses of his promise, and he restated his name, that Moses might lift his eyes off of Israel's situation and see the bigger picture. God desired that Moses, along with Israel and Egypt, as we'll see today, know his power and experience his glory. And friends, that's what I pray God would enable us to encounter today. And so I invite you to follow along as I read our text. Exodus 6, beginning with verse 28. The scriptures read, Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out from it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. And may God bless the public reading of his word. If you have the NIV translation this morning, then you'll notice how this portion of Scripture falls under the subheading, Aaron to speak for Moses. And it follows the section that we didn't study last week, which provides a, a genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And based upon this grammatical formatting and textual flow, scholars believe that these verses we just read together are simply a, a statement, a summary statement of all that's happened to this point. They argue that as an oral culture in which very few were literate, the stories Moses recorded in the Pentateuch, meaning the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they were written in such a way as to be more easily remembered, hence the repetition. And I agree. However, I believe there's also some nuance here as regard God's plan, which he repeats to Moses, that we would benefit from seeing together this morning, with the first thing being that God's plan involves people. God's plan involves people. In verses 28 and 9, Yahweh reminds Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. Now, it should be clear by this point that that which the Lord desires Moses to declare to Pharaoh is his. That's Yahweh's demand that Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. This is the Lord's plan, and it's, it's been this plan that Moses has bucked from the beginning, but God, in his great mercy, patiently persuades Moses because the Lord's plan involves people. Now, I would hope 
that this point is obvious to us all this morning. If you've been journeying with us through this series and through this point, then I know you've heard this plan clearly explicated along the way. We spent several weeks examining chapter 3 when Moses' encounter with the burning bush where God introduced himself to Moses and convinced him of all that he was going to do. And so the Lord's plan clearly involves people. But what I believe that we may easily miss is the fact explicitly expressed in this text that it doesn't need to. It doesn't need to. You notice how this reminder begins? What's the first thing there that God declares to Moses? It's his name, isn't it? I am the Lord. God doesn't begin by going over the plan. He doesn't reassure Moses of its details or even the signs by which he was going to authenticate his calling. God simply declares his name. I am the Lord. And friends, this is a moment where I believe we would be wise to consider along with Shakespeare's famous character, Juliet, what's in a name? Because the name Yahweh expresses God's existence. I am who I am. God's name declares his total independence of everything. He alone is. There's no one else, nothing else of which it can be said it is or they are. There's no one else, nothing. God, only Yahweh. God's name bespeaks his exclusive existential independence of everything. Thus, he needs nothing, no one. He depends solely upon himself, for he alone is. And this is a, a difficult reality for us to wrap our minds around, because everything else that we know depends upon something else. At some level, from the micro to the macro, whether it be oxygen, companionship, heat, water, light, everything depends upon something else. But God depends upon nothing. And friends, it's this state of being that makes this First point, so powerful. God declares, I am the Lord. In other words, Moses, I need nothing. I depend upon no one. I simply am. Now, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I tell you. Meaning, Moses, I'm involving you in my plan. What, what a privilege. And my friends, God's gracious inclusion of people in his rescue plans didn't end with Moses and the people of Israel. In the New Testament, we feel the glorious gospel quakes of which these Old Testament stories were simply tremors. As the Apostle Paul declared in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. And then again in his letter later to the church in Rome, chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, we, humanity, are all messed up. But God graciously, meaning apart from any worth or merit on our part, makes things right through His Son Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. God doesn't need us, and yet He saves us. And this glorious gospel plan involves people, as Jesus declared to His disciples, as you well know, Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, therefore what? 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And the Apostle Paul repeats the same truth when in Romans 10 he proclaims, How can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can someone preach unless they've been sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God's plan involves people. And church, this is our very great privilege. We've been commended, as was Moses, to share God's message of freedom from slavery. Only we're not describing physical slavery to foreign oppressors, but spiritual slavery to sin and to death. God's great rescue plan involves people. And before we respond like Moses did, may we hear a second truth that's contained in this summative text, this reminder, and that is that God's plan depends upon His person. God's plan depends upon His person. Look back with me to verse 1 there of chapter 7. Verse 1 of 7. It's, it's here following Moses' blurt. But since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? It's an excuse that's recorded at the conclusion of chapter 6. The Lord says in chapter 7 and verse 1, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. And with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, I hope you noticed the intonation there. And all of the first person pronouns that God employed. What I believe we see here is God reiterating the fact that His plan, while involving people, remains independent of them. In other words, God is making clear to Moses that all He has to do is to do what God tells Him. He doesn't have to be inventive, a clever organizer, or a gifted debater. All He has to do is pass along to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, what God told him to say, to fulfill the role of God's prophet, if you will. God's the one who's going to give him the words. God is the one who's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. God is the one who will multiply his miracles in the land. God is the one who will lay his hand upon Egypt, and God is the one who will bring his people out. This plan is God's plan, and he will accomplish this plan. God's plan depends upon God's person. And church, I know that we've seen this in weeks past, because this was the very point that God made when he first approached Moses. Standing before the burning bush, Moses asked, as I'm sure you recall, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? At this point, as we said, Moses believed that God depended upon the ability of his servants to accomplish his mission. For Moses, God was powerful, certainly he was, but he had needs. He wasn't all powerful, and yet, as we see here in our text, God wasn't depending upon Moses' natural skill as a speaker, his power of personality or prior Egyptian connections. In fact, our text points out how Moses provided the opposite, didn't he? He stutters. The man can't speak in public. 
He's scared of, of Egypt's political leaders. He needs an assistant. And he's old. Not that age is a bad thing. I mean, the scriptures are clear that God's blessing rests upon the aged. And there is wisdom that often, not always, but often marks the elderly. But that being said, Moses' age, as is mentioned in verse 7 here of chapter 7, reveals his fragility, not any unique ability. This is a case, I believe, like we see back in Genesis chapter 18, when God came to Abraham. That's the man that he had promised earlier in chapter 12 to make into a great nation. The man that God had declared would have descendants as numerous as the stars. And yet at the age of 99, 99, Abraham had a son. And that, a son born by his concubine. Abraham was 99. And Sarah was 89 when God promised them a son. Both were in a place of life where that which was promised was completely out of their control. I mean, Sarah even says, and I love how the NIV renders her sentiments in Genesis 18.12. She says, after I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Sarah recognized, as did Abraham and Moses, for that matter, that that which God was calling them to was beyond their ability. God's plan was something they could not accomplish on their own. And so left to themselves, this plan would fail because it wasn't humanly possible. And church, that's the point. God's plan to rescue his people using two old dudes, one with a stutter and the other a slave, was an absolute joke in the eyes of the world. And that was the lens through which Moses was viewing things in this moment. In, in church, I fear that often we share this same lens when we consider the plan in which God has graciously privileged us participation. Church, we've been commissioned. We've been included in God's rescue plan for the world. As we've already noted, Jesus commissioned us in Matthew 28, and we also know from Acts 1-8 that he stated, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God has graciously afforded us the privilege of proclaiming his gospel to the world, but I fear that often we shrink from the task. I fear that often we respond like Moses, God, you can't, you can't have meant to include me. I have a stutter. I can't speak. I can't get up in front of others. I don't know all the answers. I haven't been to seminary. I, Lord, I know you say in your word you can use anybody, even a donkey and a whale, but I can't save anybody. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had a conversation with a friend, maybe a neighbor, a coworker, even, in which you tried to share your faith, and it's like you get this frog in your throat whenever the opportunity arises for you to mention Jesus' name? I have. You know, I'm sure there are a host of reasons that we can give for those moments of failure, much like Moses did. And with each, I believe we display our ignorance of the truth or simply our inability to fully appreciate the fact that God's plan depends upon His person. He's the one who saves. The Apostle Paul made a statement in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. It was a statement that sparked a change in one man, which ultimately led to a movement that we refer to today as the Reformation. And this statement is this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the gospel is God's power to save? Unfortunately, there are many, I believe, whose theology today leads them to view salvation as something contingent solely upon an individual's ability to select for themselves. And for this reason, the more effective they are in their witnessing, the greater the chance that they have of successfully saving souls. But friends, I pray, I pray that we can all see how unbiblical this view is to begin with. And how harmful this is to our faith. Because if salvation, if the salvation of others depends solely upon us, then we are grossly guilty for failing to save those with whom we've shared the gospel and for our failure to share the gospel with those we've simply been quiet in regards to. And if the salvation of others was dependent upon us, then those who'd rejected and those we'd failed to save, their eternal suffering would rest on us. And that's a burden that we simply cannot bear. And, and for those who attempt to do so, they quickly become overwhelmed. We can't save by our skill in apologetics or our in-depth knowledge of another's religion. We can't save, period. But the gospel does. And therefore, we're all called to share it. Do you know the gospel? In church life, we often speak of our personal testimony. It's a phrase I'm sure we've most of us have heard, and by this we mean the story of our experience with the gospel. And it's this that we emphasize being shared with others because it relates our life's change to others who may share some of those same things in common with us. And I believe that we should all be able to share with others how God's grace in the gospel has changed us personally. Personally, not how in our family things have gone, but personally. But far more important, church, I believe we need to be clear on what is the gospel. That which is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so for those this morning who are unfamiliar, the gospel is the good news that in the beginning, a holy God created everything. He made people to live in a perfect relationship with him, but they ruined it. They sinned. They disobeyed and acted in ways contrary to God's character and, and in offense to his designs. And thus God punished them by removing them from his presence. And so where before God's creation had enjoyed and known only life in all its perfection, now they faced death. And this is the condition in which we're born, every single one of us. We are born broken and desperate to restore that which was lost. Even when we're unable to articulate that desire that resides deep within us, we each and every one sense it. And so to this end, we try all manner of things, to satisfy, but nothing can, can it? Power, money, love, none of these things satisfy us. And this is why God sent His Son, Jesus. He came like us in every way, and yet without sin. He lived the perfect life that restored relationship with God, a life that we could not live. But then He also died on a cross and was buried for three days and then rose again. And He died so He might pay the penalty that our failure to live that life had incurred. And then he rose again. And now, whoever believes in Jesus 
may know life. Do you know the gospel? Have you experienced the gospel? Personally experienced the gospel? And do you believe that it is God's power to save? Because if you do, then you have nothing to be ashamed of when you share it. Rather, we can rejoice that God has privileged us to be involved in his rescue plan. And it's here in our text, I believe we see that God involves people in his plan. His plan depends upon his person. But then thirdly, God's plan reveals his power. God's plan reveals his power. And I believe we see this point communicated in verse 5. So if you would look back with me there to our text into chapter 7 and verse 5. Chapter 7, verse 5. Despite all the similarities that we've seen to this point in this summative text, this is a point of glaring difference. Verse 5 reads, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. You know, as I said before, in every instance prior to this point in which God has declared His intentions to Moses, the reason that He has given for liberating Israel has always been that they, that's Israel, would know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. However, here in verse 5, we read God's heart that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And church, what I believe this subject change reveals is not that God is no longer concerned with communicating His person to His people. That's a given. That's a given as reflected by the statement to this very effect back in chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you, that is Israel, will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Rather, what I believe verse 5 is making clear here is that God's power is over all people. God's rescue of Israel was a demonstration of His absolute power, such that when the dust settled in Egypt, following the plagues, which we're going to look at together next week, and which I'm very excited about, when the dust settled, the Egyptians would also know Yahweh is God. And Emmanuel, as men and women who in many ways, like Egypt, are not of Jewish background. We're not of Jewish heritage. At least most of us aren't, I know. I believe the truth that we see here reflects the beauty of God's gospel plan as it was first communicated to Abraham. In the very beginning, God promised all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And the psalmist, Psalm 67, proclaims the same truth as he sings, May God be gracious to us, and bless us and make his face to shine upon us so that your ways may be known on earth. Your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you. Oh God, may all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy for you rule who? The peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, oh God. May all the peoples Praise you. Then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Church, God's plan to rescue Israel was never about cultural exclusivity. It was always about salvific inclusivity, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God's plan is that one day, a day that we know is known only to the Father, one day there will be a gathering 
around his throne, a gathering that, of God's people that will be composed of men and women from every tongue and tribe who will proclaim his praise forever. God's plan reveals his power as it results in a pagan people, as we'll see in our text, begrudgingly, yes, and yet inescapably acknowledging his supremacy. Such is the power of our God. Do you know him? Friends, the, the God of the Bible has plans that are wholly unlike mine and yours, for that matter. God's plans involve people, his people, proclaiming his gospel for his glory. God's plans involve people, but they also depend upon his person. He's the one who saves. As he informed Moses later on in his own life, God declared, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is the one who saves, church, by His grace. We are merely the privileged messengers through whom God's Word is proclaimed. And this is not an excuse for being a poorly informed messenger. On the contrary, the significance of our responsibility ought to drive us to study so that we might show ourselves approved. In Paul's words, a workman who need not be ashamed. Moses had no excuse for not knowing God's message to Pharaoh and the people of Israel. And so neither do we. We have his word. And in his word, he reveals his gospel. So church, we need to know it. God's plans involve people. God's plans depend upon his person. And God's plans reveal his power. I pray that each and every one of you has experienced this power in your life. And for those of us who have, I challenge you this week that comes to make plans to share this glorious gospel with somebody else. But if you're here this morning and you haven't, then as we close, I'd like to pray for you because the gospel which you've heard is the power of God for salvation. And I'd like to pray that God would buy this very power Open your eyes to see that He is holy, that you are a sinner, and that your only hope rests in His Son, Jesus Christ. So would you pray with me to that end? Father, we praise You for giving us the Gospel. Lord, there was, You were under no obligation to save us, but You did, because You are a God of grace, and you are a God who is love. And this is how we know what love is. That you gave us your son who died for us. It's not that we loved you, but you loved us. Father, thank you for your gospel. Lord, and as the many who are here may attest, Father, we did nothing to deserve your enlivening. We did nothing to merit what is grace, for it could not be grace if we had. Father, you opened our eyes to truth, and we believed. And Lord, if there's anyone today who has not personally experienced this power, whose heart's eyes haven't been opened, who haven't admitted that they're a sinner, and repented of that sin and believed in Jesus as the Son of God, then, Lord, I would pray that in these moments that follow, that that would be your grace 
work in their lives. For there is no other name under heaven given to men and women by which we may be saved but that of Jesus. And Lord, there are many who attempt other routes and listen to the world's promises that there are alternate ways, but You have made it abundantly clear. Salvation comes through Jesus. And Father, we pray that that would be true today. And in this week that follows, Lord God, would You embolden us to know that the Gospel is Your power to save. And therefore, we need only be faithful to share it. Father, we thank You that we are Your people. And You have called us to be a part of this glorious Gospel plan of bringing Your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, thank You for these things. In Jesus' name, Amen.